take our seats again. That'd be super cool. Thank you. Still <laughs> Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. That's good. All right, th th this is the second warning. <laughs> All right, can I, can I pray for you, Adrian? Yes, please. Lord, we just uh, we thank you for Heather and Adrian. We just thank you for that time they've had away, a time of rest and uh, recuperation, Lord. But we're just so grateful that they're back here, Lord, and you've brought them back safely. And we just thank you for their faithfulness and the way that you serve they serve you, Lord. And so we pray that uh, you'll just anoint and appoint um, Adrian this morning and speak through him, Lord, powerfully. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Morning, everyone. It's, um, it's really good to be back. We had a lovely time away, but it genuinely is good to be back because this is home um, and it's great to be home. Even in our last week on holidays, we both looked at each other and said, we're ready to go home now. Um, as beautiful as it all is, um, there's nothing like home, really. There's, I think there's a saying about that, there's no place like home, yeah. Um, it's true, there is no place like home. So, you know, we're back for a couple of weeks and then we're nicking off for another six months. Um, <laughs> no, just saying. I, I saw on um, Facebook uh, a post, you know, about welcoming me back, saying, looking forward to Adrian coming back and preaching up a storm. Um, you're going to have to settle for a gentle breeze this morning because... <laughs> Uh, I've just got over the jet lag and I've been, I'm a bit out of practice, so I just need lots of encouragement this morning. Just nod, just nod and clap and agree, yeah. Uh, help him, Jesus, help him, Jesus, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. Um, just pretend to be, yeah, that's what I need, that, I need that this morning. Anyway, given that I am just kind of back, I thought I'd ease myself in with something very provocative. So this morning... Um, we're going to be looking at communion, um, the Lord's table, the Eucharist. Uh, now that might seem strange to think, well, how on earth is that provocative? Well, wait till I'm finished. Um, because I think sometimes we forget the implications of this thing that we do, that it has on us personally and what it has for the world. And this morning, so what I want to do is just have a look at how this meal that Jesus inaugurated all that time back then, um, why it is so needed and necessary for us to really embrace all that that is about today and why we as people uh, who claim to be followers of Jesus, why we, the church, as followers of Jesus, need to learn to be better at building bigger tables because this meal, uh, as symbolic as it is, is uh, incredibly prophetic and powerful and has the capacity to transform lives, ours and others. So that's why I want to look at it this morning. So if you have your Bibles there, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through to 34. And while you're doing that, I want to ask you a question. If you were setting a table for a bunch of people to come around for a meal, a special meal, all right, who would you not think to invite? Even more importantly, who would you specifically not invite? And why? And do you think that's a problem and are you prepared to do anything about it? I want you to leave that question hanging in your head as we go through this. So this morning I'm going to do something I don't normally do and I'm going to read you this whole passage because I think it's really important that we read this passage together. So it's 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17. And this is Paul writing to the, the, the young church that he planted in Corinth. 
And it says, In the following directives I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Oh, this is going to be a charming letter, isn't it? Excellent. I'm excited to hear the rest of what you've got to say. But what he says is, look, you know, to be honest, when you come together, it actually does more damage than it does good. That's a really big indictment. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together... It is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a nice way of saying you died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. What a happy piece, of, happy piece of writing that was. But it's actually really good. And I promise when I, I tell this story that I am not going to tell all my holiday stories, okay? But this is pertinent, okay? So I'm going I'm to share this, all right? It's not just going to be week... I thought I could just do a slide night. Um, <laughs> it's not just going to be a whole bunch of... of, of, of anyway, blah. So Heather and I were driving through um, Tuscany, right? And we were, sorry? Like, yeah, as you do, as you do. We, you know, we, were, just, we, were, we were driving through Tuscany, it's, it's, it's what everyone does. And um, we were driving through this little village and we noticed as we came to this little village, we could see flags everywhere. And as you drove through this village, you could see that each kind of section of this village had different flags all the way down, about six to eight different flags in six to eight sections of this village. And it turns out that we were there around this time of the year that was really ramping up in this part of southern Tuscany where they have these kind of uh, intra-neighbourhood competitions and these flags represent what they call their contradas, which are their neighbourhoods. So in each village they have these kind of once or even twice a year they have co these friendly competitions to see who is the champion contrada. And we were going up to, we went up to Siena, which is a much larger um, town, and they have a very big one there twice a year where they, they actually fill the entire town square, which is about maybe three football pitches, um, with sand. And then they have this bareback horse race around to see who's going to win. But beyond that, they set up, and they were doing this while we were there, they were setting up all these sections with just really long tables and benches 
all over the city because that's where the various contratas sit to eat during these celebrations. And when they get together to eat with their own contrata, part of the deal is that you, you, mock, you mock and you hurl abuse at the other contratas as well. You know, like you, 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 it's, all done, it's all good natured and it's all fun. They sit there and they just, they just take the mick out of one another and they have this competition and, they, and it's, it looks wonderful. And I thought, you know, that, that's really a, a healthy way of, of, of doing this, you know, but it's all, it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye, right? Um, because, because here's the thing, right? Whilst that's, that expression of it is actually really fun and healthy and helpful and, you know, it's all really good and my iPad seems to have closed itself for some reason. Um, I forgot to put the lock on. Um, we have to recognise that inherently and intuitively we human beings tend to be really tribalistic, don't we? You know, we tend to always want to um, gravitate towards our own. And sometimes that's, you know, there's absolutely there's some positives about that as well. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be around people who are kind of like us. And, and in a kind of benign, innocuous way, it's just that the way that manifests is that we move around people who are our own, we kind of get into a bit of a little insular bubble, a little bit of an echo chamber. We're not overtly trying to disassociate ourselves from everyone else, but it's kind of the net effect. At, at the more malevolent, kind of malignant level, that's where it starts to manifest in you overtly have something against other people. You know what I'm talking about? You know, people who are not us, them. You know, and it's different for everyone. You, you, some people, it's race, um, religion, it could be politics, uh, it could be your favourite bachelor contestant. You know, it could be all of the really big issues that separate us. But it gets to the point where it's no longer now just about, I don't hang around with them because they're different. I, we start to actually get to the point where we demonise um, and denigrate other people who are not like us. Have you watched the news recently? Anyone? Okay. Watch, I am genuinely alarmed by what I see when I turn on the television with the polarisation that seems to be occurring in the world right now. It's not like, you know, and maybe, maybe I just have an idealistic or a romantic kind of view of what the past used to be like, but it used to be that you could be different and hold a different opinion without necessarily needing to absolutely flay the other people, Yeah. And it seems to me that what's going on is it's just getting angry and it's just getting nasty and people are turning against one another and people are demanding that people put their hand up and identify which side of the line these people kind of, you know, you, you stand on to determine whether or not I'm going to actually associate with you or not. Have you seen that sort of stuff go on? You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's alarming to watch that. And when people who are heads of state uh, lead the charge in that, um, you know, we're in real trouble, people, because it there's a knock-on effect. It just flows down, and it gives people permission to be more overt in their prejudice and in their bias, and people don't feel the need to even pretend anymore that they really don't value people who are not like them. And that creates a really horrible world to live in, not one that I'm keen to be a part of, that's for sure. And there's a temptation for us too, especially in the Christian church, to think that somehow we're not like that. Hmm. I think over 33,000 different Christian denominations gives lie to that point, don't you? 33,000 and growing. Because, you know, we can agree on Nine out of ten things, but it's that tenth thing that means I can't be around you anymore. 
and, and you know, uh, you're not faithful because if you were faithful, you would believe the 10 out of 10 things that I do. So you create a church that believes those 10 out of 10 things that you believe. And someone comes along looking for a church that lines up with the things that they believe and they find that there are 10 out of 10 that they believe, but they also believe an 11th thing. And so they go and start a church about the 11th thing. Hey, I could start a thing here. We're the 11th thing church. And then someone comes along to that church where they agree with all 11 tenets, but guess what? Number 12 is no way. You know, and we split and, and, and get acrimonious over the silliest, stupid things. It's not exactly John 17, is it? You know that last prayer of Jesus before he's about to be arrested and crucified? Where he says, Father, I, my prayer is for those who come after us, that they may be one as you and I are one. Jesus' last prayer was for the unity of the church. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to be and think and do the same, does it? That's not unity, that's uniformity, right? And there's a difference between unity and uniformity. But Jesus prayed that we would be united in that we would be able to still be one despite our differences. We should be setting the example in this. See, here's the thing I want us to understand in this, particularly when it comes to how it relates to this supper and what this supper represents. Differences do not have to become division. That's the easy way. That's the way everyone else takes it. When we can't handle the tension of being around people who are not like us, who don't think like us, who aren't on the same page as us, the easiest thing is to simply separate them from them. But as we'll see as we go through this, we don't have the right to do that because what we're about is exactly the opposite thing. Differences do not have to become divisions, but they nearly always do. And let's be honest, at an individual level, all of us have got a cut-off point. Again, it might not be overt, it might just be really subtle. But there are people that we don't associate with. There are people that we do not want to associate with, yes? Let's be honest about that. I've got a list. I do. It's not necessarily individual, sometimes it's a type of person. See, I've got Facebook friends. Isn't that a bizarre term? A Facebook friend. It's like it's a thing. It's not a thing, but it is. So I've got these Facebook friends, right? And some of them are so theologically and therefore politically removed from where I stand that I have to unfollow them because I can't stand seeing their posts anymore. The way they talk about refugees, the way they talk about immigrants, the way they talk about women, the way they talk about people who, from different religions and what, they, what actions they believe can be justified because these people are not part of that group is heinous. It is reprehensible when I see this. And in fact, one of my friends, he, was just, he weighed in on something about a tsunami and about the fact that isn't it interesting that it only occurs where you know, people are Muslim. It went further than that, and I'm ashamed to say that it was almost like they deserve it. So I said to him, hey, listen, I did this privately, not publicly, because I don't believe in getting in Facebook fights on posts, right? So if you want to go me, we're going to go privately, not publicly, okay? <clears throat> better still, let's talk face to face, all right? The world is not going to get better using social media to solve our differences, all right? You, that's, you can tweet that. Um, <laughs> So I said to him, hey, do you, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you believe that Jesus is God? He went, absolutely. I said, do you believe that he is 
the full and final definitive revelation of who God is and what God is like. Absolutely. I said, so we're agreed on that, right? Yeah. I said, fantastic. So can you show me anywhere from the teaching or example of Jesus that would support the things that you're saying? He's been very quiet since. See, to cherry pick Old Testament verses, to use them against people is one thing. To realise that that God is this God and in that God and this God are exactly the same, you cannot justify that type of stuff because you'll never find that stuff coming through the mouth of Jesus, will you? So he's been very, very quiet since. And I think that's the stand that we have to have whenever we're thinking about our disagreements and the way we handle them. WWJD. And that's why this meal is so important. Because we've all got these cut-off points. For some of us, it's... For me, personally, it's some of these people who hold these extreme right-wing views that I can't reconcile with Jesus. For others, it's people at the other... I, I am that to them. I'm the someone that they would not be happy to sit at the table with because I represent some sort of soppy left-wing, lovey-dovey God that they don't recognise. You know, everyone's got their thing. Some people wouldn't sit down at a table with a gay person or a drag queen. Some people wouldn't sit down at the table with a racist. Okay? We've all got our cut-off points. We just have to recognise what they are. And again, that's why this meal is so important and why we understand that it is so much more than a meal. Okay? It is a proclamation of what Jesus has done and what Jesus is going to do. Paul says, when we eat this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is it that Jesus has done? One, he has brought salvation. And salvation, as we talk about regularly here, is more about more, far, far more than pie in the sky when you die. It's not about getting an all-access, uh, accessible areas passed to heaven when you die. It's more than that. It's about having, being saved from the things, not just the penalty of sin. It's about being saved from the things in our life that keep us from being the type of people and living the type of life that God wants us to live. A life that represents him, his values, his kingdom. It's about saving us from that, not just after death when we die, but now while we're still alive, being saved from those things that do not represent the type of world he is building that represents his justice and faithfulness and goodness and love. It's about being saved from that and understanding that one of the things that Jesus saves us from is our inherent bias and prejudice against other people, our need to sometimes divide ourselves from others and denigrate others. Because you know what the Bible says? In Jesus Christ, there is neither slave nor free, Gentile nor Jew, male nor female. For we are all what? One in Christ Jesus. Jesus breaks down all of those things that divide us. It doesn't mean there are no distinctions. Obviously, there are still male and female. And in fact, this, this, this passage that we're reading this morning flows on from something Paul is saying to the Corinthians about the, the issues they're having between male and female. And in one sense, he's saying, you guys are rubbing out lines in one area where you need to keep the lines, and you're creating lines in other areas where you shouldn't be creating lines. We'll, we'll talk about exactly what that looked like in a minute. But of course, there are distinctions, but it means in terms of our relationship to God, in terms of our standing in the kingdom and of our worthiness, we are all one. We all stand on equal footing, yes? No one person is better than the other. 
It doesn't matter what colour you are. It doesn't matter what political persuasion you are. It doesn't matter where it, whether your theology is fantastic. It doesn't matter how much money you have, your social standing. It doesn't matter how many followers you've got on Facebook or on Twitter. It doesn't matter. What matters is we are all one in Jesus and we all stand before him on equal footing. So Jesus wants to save us from anything within us that says otherwise, in our thought or in our practice. The other thing that we're celebrating in this is beyond salvation... It's the anticipation of cosmic restoration. That's why Paul says whenever you celebrate this, this meal, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. What's going to happen when Jesus returns? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly. God is going to unite all things in creation under one head, that is Jesus. Everything is going to be united. Everything is going to be united. You read the book of Revelation, spoiler alert... Every nation, tribe, and tongue are all in the one place together, worshipping God and getting along just fine. So, if you struggle being around a table with people who are not like you in any way, shape, or form, heaven is not going to be a bunch of fun for you, is it? It's going to be all the people there that you don't want to be there, that you don't think should be there, but they're going to be there because Jesus is going to bring us all together. And so you know what? If we're uncomfortable with that thought, that's something in us that needs healing, yes? If we're uncomfortable with that idea, then that's something in us that still needs saving, that still needs transformation. This is why differences can be really, really good for us and why we don't want to obliterate differences. Why we're not going for uniformity but unity because differences force us to stretch and grow. Differences make us have a look at ourselves. Why is it that that person evokes that response in me? Why is it that that particular position or that particular idea makes me feel like that? That's a cue for us to have a look inside, not just point the finger and say, you're wrong because you make me feel uncomfortable. And let's face it, the greatest grace growers, the people that transform, help us be transformed more than anything, are other people who don't think like us. Yeah? Yeah? Man, if everyone is just like us, it, there is a temptation sometimes, isn't there, for us to think the world would be a better place if we could all just get on the same page, i.e. if everyone was like me. Right? If you thought like me, we could all... Get, it would just be boring. It would just be really, really, really boring. Difference is one of the spices of life. It's what makes the world go round. But more importantly, it's one of those ingredients that actually helps us be transformed as individuals. See, I don't need grace to hang around with people who think like me. I need grace when I butt up against people who are everything I don't like. That's where I need grace. That's where we need grace. So we're not trying to eradicate difference. We're, what we need is the grace and the humility to be able to live with difference and to be able to handle it well, and to be able to have conversations, be able to treat one another respectfully, be able to listen, to be able to hold the truth that we have lightly, to go to the best of my ability and understanding, this is what I genuinely believe, but I'm open to the fact that I may not have it completely right. 
That's what we need to be able to tolerate differences. So how does all this relate to communion? And boy, I wish I'd unlocked my iPad. Okay, we're going to finish with this last point, and it is the last point. How long have I been going? Is anyone keeping the tab? Okay. Two hours? Okay, two more to go. All right. Excellent. Okay, so how does this relate to communion? And this is where I'm going to land it. I'm going to say this. When it comes to the table, communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, there are no unworthy people. There, are, there is only unworthy practice. So when it comes to the table, there are no unworthy people. There is only unworthy practice. Please hear me out on that. Because of the way we've traditionally interpreted this, if you've been around church for a while, you'll understand this. If you haven't, I hope the way I'm about to explain it will make sense to you. But you, read, you heard as I read through that passage about taking the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner, right? And typically and traditionally that has been um, sort of taught to us that, you know, you're going to go to communion, you're just going to make sure that you're, you've got a right standing before God, that there's nothing wrong in you. Because it's, it's a bit like Russian roulette really, isn't it? You know, you're going to take communion and there are two possible outcomes. One, nothing's going to happen. So it's like, whew. secondly, you could die. Um, and so, every, you know what I'm talking about, people who've been around church for a while? You go to communion and it's like, uh, is there anything in me that's stopping me from taking this this morning? So, for example, I, and I know lots of other people, I've sat communion out on multiple times because I've been angry or I've been hurt or there's something going on with me and I think, I haven't dealt with that, so I'm not going to take communion because I do not want to get struck dead. All right? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay. And, and other times, we go through a catalogue of confession, don't we? It's like, you know, I kicked the cat, uh, I stole that lady's parking spot, um, blah, 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 blah. and then you hope you haven't forgotten anything because you don't want to be dragged out by your feet and put in a box, you know? It's, I'm exaggerating, but you get the point, you know? We are taught unworthy is that there's something in us that's unworthy, and God is going to judge that if we take communion like that, okay? We think about it like that because we still think about it principally, I mean, largely, as just a private affair. It's, this is about me saying, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sin, and that's it. And, but it is so much more than that. Yes, there is this vertical dimension to that about our relationship with God. I'm not denying that at all, okay? But actually, the table has a far more of a horizontal thing going on here. It's not just about me and God. It's about me and everyone else. It's not just about my standing with God. It's about me and my relationships and my standing with other people. Loving God and loving neighbour are two sides of the same coin. They always have been and they always will be. So the specific unworthiness of the Corinthians, and this is where we're going to like dig into the text, and it won't take me long, I promise, was that their personal sin and shortcomings from God was not the problem. If you read through um, Corinthians, you'll see that these guys had so many problems and so much stuff that was going wrong, it wasn't funny. But Paul never brings that up in relation to this. Okay? Their specific sin and their shortcoming was how they were treating each other when they came to the Lord's table. It was the way in which they approached communion. How? It goes like this. In their world, in the Greco-Roman world in those days, rich people <coughs> would often make a show of inviting poor people over for dinner. Okay? Bring them over for a meal. Sounds lovely, right? But the way they did it wasn't lovely at all. 
because the rich people would do one of two things. One, they would have a special smaller room where they and their rich friends would sit and have all the best wine and best food, and then they would put all the hoi polloi in all the other rooms in their house with less quality food and wine. So they've done the lovely thing, they've invited people over for dinner, but they actually haven't associated with them at all, and they've given them second best, right? Or they would do something that was even worse. They and their rich friends would start the meal and then they would let the poor people come in when they had had their fill. And so the poor people could pick through what was left over. How humiliating is that? And what happened in this Corinthian church and why Paul was so upset was that when they were coming to the Lord's Supper, they were doing exactly the same thing. Because like now, like then, uh, then like now, the church was made up of people from all different types of backgrounds and some had money and some didn't. And so when they came in to have communion, they just did what they always did. They segregated off, the rich did their thing and then the poor were left with the scraps and it was a humiliating experience for them. And this is why Paul gets so upset with them and makes them want to think about exactly what it is that they're doing. He, that's why he says to them, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Because the Lord's Supper doesn't make those distinctions. The Lord's Supper doesn't denigrate people. The Lord's Supper doesn't make people feel like they shouldn't be there. The Lord's Supper welcomes everyone to the table as equals. Are you with me? That's what was going on here. And so Paul says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. He says, if you want to stuff your faces and get drunk, stay at home. Stay at home and do that because by doing that, when you come and do this thing, you're treating with contempt the body of the Lord and you are not recognising the body of Jesus. What does he mean by that? One, that it is no ordinary meal. In ways that we do not understand, Jesus is very present in and at this meal. When we talk about the bread being his body, it's his body. Now, don't come to me and go, you've gone all Catholic on me, Adrian. All right? Lots of Protestant reformers believed in the very real presence of Jesus in the meal. It's a mystery. I don't believe in ringing bells and transubstantiation and all that. That's just one way people try and make sense of it. I just put it in the category of it's a mystery. I don't know. But I do know this. Jesus is both present in and at that meal. And, we, and Paul's um, sort of counsel to them is, you need to remember that. This, this isn't just getting together to have frangos. Like this... This is serious, right? You are taking of the body and blood of Jesus. This is a serious business. Secondly, you're not recognising, you're not discerning the body. You're not recognising that you're all one. That those distinctions that you used to have out there in the world before you came to Jesus, slave and free, male and female, haves and have-nots, they don't exist in the church because you're all one. In relation to the kingdom, you're all equal and so there should be no people sitting in special rooms there should be no people going first and leaving leftovers for the rest you should and one of the literal translations is welcome everyone as a valued guest stop bringing those distinctions to this table because that is not a characteristic of the kingdom and he says and when you do that you pay a price some of you get sick some of you fall asleep. Some people were actually dying because of this. And that's why he says, examine yourself first. Check yourself first in the way you approach this. 
Don't, it's not about checking your moral worthiness. It's about checking whether or not you are recognising the body of Jesus, both in what you're about to do and in the people around you who are coming. Is there anything in you that's looking down your nose at anyone else around here? Is there anything in you that thinks that person shouldn't be at the table? Is there anything in you that says you should go first and they should go last? You look at that sort of stuff because that is the, that is the issue. You still with me? Let me say a little, couple of little things to, to end, okay? The stakes are high for Paul in this, right? One, because as I said, Jesus is very real and very present in this meal. And hold that thought because it's going to be very important in what I'm about to say, okay? Jesus is very much in, it's his table. Secondly, if I wasn't a local church pastor, if I was just like a guest speaker that you'd invited in here today who could say whatever I want and then walk away and not worry about the trouble I'd caused, right? I would say <laughs> that I'm not, so I, I, I won't, but if I was just a guest preacher, I would say that it, 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 when it is an open table, and when I say it's an open table, it is open to all, everyone is welcome at this table. There are no restrictions as to who can come to this table. Now that's what I would say if I was a guest preacher, but I'm not, so I don't say that. Okay, here's why I say that. And here, why I want... Okay, good. You can, to the guest preacher, and he appreciates that, and he will now go and leave me to clean up the mess. Um, now, that seems really weird, given what I just said about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, and I know that sort of puts up a lot of flags for a bunch of us that have been around church. So, again, bear with me in this, all right? The practice of gathering around the table, around the Lord's Supper, that was the central common practice of the early church. It, it wasn't like today. It wasn't come for worship. It wasn't come listen to a sermon. It was let's get together and have a meal and do it in the name of Jesus and give thanks for that and pray for one another, and, and that's, you know... Now, one of the other things we need to remember, and let me get a little bit geeky and a little bit chronological with you, is that these early Christian communities were up and running and going long before the Gospels were ever written. We often think that they're sitting around like us with their Bible and taking their cue from that. There was no Bible. If they had a Jewish background, there was some Old Testament stuff there. Most of Paul's letters were written before the Gospels were ever written. So these practices are already happening, and they haven't even got Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So when they were written, when these Gospels were written, they were disseminated to these, these communities so they could understand. And one of the things you'll notice, in, especially in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, you will notice that it is highlighted time and time again is the central scandal of Jesus' table practice. And what was the scandal of Jesus' table practice? He was always eating with all the wrong people. Yeah? What was the question that was always levelled at him via his disciples? Why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why? He was always doing it. Why does he do it? All the time. All the time. Okay? Time and time again. And it wasn't an unreasonable thing for them to ask that question because Jesus was living and ministering and doing his thing in a context that was governed by the purity laws out of the Old Testament, out of Leviticus. And it was really clear. So the Pharisees were not just being silly. They were doing what they'd been taught from their Bible. And the, it clearly says in Leviticus, touch none, no unclean thing. Okay? 
Because if you touch an unclean thing, it's going to defile you. And that's why they had all these elaborate practices like straining gnats out of their drinks, about washing their hands like seven times before they ate, all of that. Because the idea was external things could contaminate you internally. So it's not an unrealistic question. But what does Jesus do in all of that? Remember what he actually says to them when, that, when he's asked that question, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? He says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Wow. What does he mean by that? Okay. Jesus was reversing the flow in all of that. Jesus was turning the idea on its head by saying, you're worried about me being contaminated by them? Have you ever thought that it could work the other way around? Have you ever thought that, that maybe instead of me being defiled by their uncleanliness, my holiness might rub off on them? And what happened? No matter how many times he hung around these unclean people, no matter how many times he bumped up against them and ate, Jesus never came away compromised, but they always went away transformed, didn't they? Yeah? Yes or no? Yes. They always went away transformed. Jesus would sit down and he would have a meal with them and these people would go away transformed. So think about it for a second. How is it that when Jesus was around in person, he could eat with the unclean and they would come away changed by him, not vice versa? But our thinking today has morphed into we have to protect this table or these people from Jesus. We have to make sure that no one gets to this who shouldn't be there. And like I said, why, why this was a really important point, that Jesus is present in this meal. The same Jesus that was around in those days in the flesh is very much present in this meal today. So is it a lesser Jesus that is present to us in this meal? Is sin stronger today? I know ostensibly we're trying to protect people from taking it unworthily so they don't drop dead, but that, as we've seen, is not what unworthily means in this passage. Why do we put up barriers between people and what they need? You don't come to this table until you get your life together. You need, you don't, that's what we say to them, isn't it? You can't come to this table until you've got your life together. You, you need to take a shower before you can take this bath. You know? That's what we say to people. You need to be morally worthy of coming to this table. Let me ask you a question. Who's morally worthy of taking communion this morning? Because I want to shake your hand. Yeah? None of us are morally worthy. You know why we take communion? Because we need it. We have communion because we need it. Communion exists because we needed it. Who are we to tell people you can't come to Jesus? The only criteria that Jesus ever puts on anything, and what I can see, even in the Old Testament, whoever is hungry, let him come and eat. Whoever is thirsty, let him come and drink. If you're hungry and thirsty, that's all that is necessary. You've just got to be intrigued and want what this offers. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. But you know, so many people that I've seen, and I've done this personally, when there's been something going on in my life, that's the one thing I've avoided. It's mental, isn't it? No, don't take the thing that could actually make a difference in your life. It's like sitting at home when you're sick and waiting till you're better before you go to the doctor. Why are you here? I was really sick. I'm better now. High five me. <laughs> Sign on the dotted line, please. That'll be $45. We would, we would think that was ludicrous, wouldn't we? You only go to the doctor when you're, when you're over it. 
Yeah, only come, to, only come to communion when you're not struggling with something. Only come to communion when you're perfect. Only come to communion when you've got your life together. We go there because we need to meet Jesus. We need to encounter Jesus. I want to be like those people in, in, in the Gospels who sat down and had a meal with him and went away and rethought my entire life. You know, it, it is arrogance for us to think that we can demand that people change and the ways in which people need to change before they are welcome at this table. I don't know what's going on for people. I don't understand their life. Okay? What, I, what we need to do is allow them just to come into proximity to Jesus and let him do the changing, yes? That's, that's all that I'm saying in all of this. Why put up barriers between people and what they need? Why do we have such a high view of sin and such a low view of the power of Jesus to be able to transform people? Operationally, that's exactly what's going on. So I have a couple of questions. A, who he was morally worthy of being at this table? And secondly, is, is it different today? Is Jesus different today? Can we pollute Jesus? Is people's sin today so bad that his holiness and grace isn't up to the task of healing it when it comes into proximity? Okay. He's just as much here at this table today as he was back then. And if that's the same, then why shouldn't the composition of those tables be the same? Why shouldn't the outcomes be the same? We have no right, no right to stop people coming for what it is they think they need. We don't get to tell people to clean up first, okay? It's not about being unworthy. It's about coming to this table in an unworthy way, not welcoming or treating people who are different to us as if they are equal or welcome guests at this table. And can I say this too, that, that even just the act of coming to the table with other people, and we lose, look, we lose something of this in the way that we do it, with a, with a cracker and a little glass of juice, because this was not how the early church did communion. It was always at home, around a table, around a meal. It was a substantial meal. And I think we would do well to get back to that, because that, there is a, a dynamic and a significance in that that you don't get with this. For example... We could be, let's just say hypothetically, we could be quite divided about a number of things today. But we can individually go up to this table, take our cup, take our cracker, sit down and take communion, no problem. But imagine sitting around a table with people whom, with whom you disagree, people that, that you don't get on with, and, and having that meal and celebrating. That's why coming to that meal is an act of repentance in itself. To be able to sit down with people that you don't agree with, people that maybe have hurt you, people that hold positions that you really struggle with, sit down with them and treat them as welcome guests at that table. That will be healing for you too. Not only will it be healing for them, it will be healing for you too. Don't forget, Jesus at his last supper, he had a bunch of people, two of the people at that table. One was a guy called Matthew who was a tax collector, right? The other was a guy called Simon who was a zealot. Zealots used to kill tax collectors. Did you know that? Zealots used to kill tax collectors because tax collectors were traitors. Zealots were all about restoring Israel by force. So here's a guy who used to kill this guy for fun. And here they are sitting at the table with Jesus. Do you think Matthew was nervous? I don't think he was because I think Simon got over it and got healing. Yeah? The pressure to identify where we stand on something is immense these days, right? 
Are you left, are you right, are you pro, are you anti, are you affirming, non-affirming, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I, I hear it more and more and more and more. People want to be able to peg us somewhere, individually and collectively as a church. What are you guys about? Where do you stand on this? Okay, well, let's talk about that. Where do we stand? I stand with trying to, to follow Jesus as best as I possibly can. I stand for that we should always maintain that we are about following the teaching and example of Jesus, which means we please no one, okay? Because we'll be too left for the right and we'll be too right for the left. We'll be too pro for the antis and we'll be too antis for the pros, okay? Jesus is nonpartisan, yes? Nonpartisan. And so are we. And so I know we're going to have a church and there's going to be right and left and pro and against and affirming and non-affirming. That's, that's fine. That's fine because we are about representing Jesus. And Jesus' practice was to sit down with any and all who would come. And in proximity to him, a mystery would happen in that stuff would get worked out that doesn't get worked out if we just fight and argue. Yeah? That's why this table is so important I've completely lost what I was up to but that's okay I'm going to finish it now anyway so in closing which I've done 10 times um, some pushback to me might be well don't you you kind of have a low view then on some of these issues that are going on around marriage and sexuality and gender and politics and those. no I don't have a low view on those things I just have a much higher view of Jesus and the Eucharist I just have a much higher view. I have a much higher view and a much greater belief in his power to transform human beings than I do to worry about squabbling about things we're never going to solve this side of eternity necessarily. So I think all of that stuff is important, don't get me wrong. And I think we should hold beliefs and opinions and convictions. We just need to do so humbly and grace, graciously. So I think it's important, I do. I'm not trying to diminish the importance of any of that stuff. I just think I would love to have a much higher view of what Jesus is about and what Jesus can do rather than these other things. And that's why, as a church, I think we could say we welcome everyone. Our job is not to sort you out before you get to Jesus. Our job is not to act as gatekeepers. Our job is to act as table setters. We set a table here and any who would come, come. And I'll just leave the transformation up to Jesus, yes? So that's where we stand on all of this. I have my opinions, I have my beliefs, but my greatest belief is I don't think anyone is beyond the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, thank you. Can I set you a challenge, though, for the, for the, the next couple of weeks? Silence. So I will. We talk about the Lord's table. As I said, it was best celebrated in homes. Who has a table? I know. So the rest of you obviously eat off the floor <laughs> or on the lounge in front of the telly. How could you use that table in the next month or so? How could you use your table to reach out to someone? Now, now please... Don't go up to someone and go, I'm really convicted by today and I think you should come over for dinner. <laughs> I.e., I hate you and I never want to sit around you, so I'm pushing myself to do this, right? 
Because, man, I, my, my dance card would fill up really quickly. So I'm not suggesting you do that, all right? That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is I'm, I'm challenging you to use your table to sit down with people, people that you may not normally sit down with and get to know them and get to listen to them and get to, get to connect on the things that do, in fact, unite us. Um, rather than the things that may potentially divide us. And it could be any number of things. And again, not necessarily overt, not nasty or anything. It's just, hey, we, we, we normally probably wouldn't associate, but we are one. Um, could, could, you, could you try that? Could you use that table and just try and reach out in some way? Um, as I said, this is not about, you know, you're the horrible person that's been invited to dinner. Um, please don't think like that. So try that. So anyway, we're going we're gonna to have communion now. I realise that it's... It's um, not exactly what I'm just talking about, but it's still important. Jesus is present in this. And maybe there's some stuff you need to deal with in your own heart this morning. Um, let, Let Jesus do some business with you in that, okay? Thank you very much.